On this episode of Stories Behind the Grind, listen to my conversation with Stuart Marshall, founder of Marshall Floyd, helping businesses improve their profit by hundreds of thousands of dollars each year. We discuss some common myths about IT, what really stops businesses from investing in IT, and how you can prevent being forgotten about in this digital era. My name is Aidan Vokolo, and here you will find business strategies, tips, and tactics that you can incorporate not only in your own venture, but your life to help you simplify and strategically grow, scaling up the impact you're having in this world. Listen as I talk to creators, innovators, and game changers on what it takes to build an impactful business, uncovering their insights, strategies, and tips to help you increase profitability and develop a thriving team culture. Welcome to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. Stuart, thanks so much for coming on the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much. Thank you for the invitation. Stuart, you help businesses improve their profit by you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars each year through designing innovative solutions that improve efficiency and energize the team. And you've been in the IT game for now for um, over 25 years now, having developed tools that are used by thousands of businesses, including Procter & Gamble and Kellogg's. Where did your interest in IT develop from? It started as a teenager, really, because being, uh, being 50 now, I, I grew up in the 80s when the first home PCs were first coming out, the first home computers. And I was the proud possessor of a ZX Spectrum when I was about 17, I think. And, and it was this, this peculiar thing that you could put some instructions in and a machine did clever things for you. And there was seemingly no limit to what you can do. And it just sort of touched a nerve with me. I thought, that, well, that's something I ought to investigate. But bizarrely, because it was the 80s, we didn't have computers in schools. You know, I mean, my daughter goes to school with a laptop every day. Uh, but we had no such things. The grammar school I went to had three computers in a room and only the really nerdy kids played with them. So it wasn't until I went and did a, a vocational qualification in, in IT as a, an 18-year-old that I actually got into the industry proper. What did you, what did you find um, once you sort of started to get doing that vocation? Did your eyes I, open up? Was there a deep I, desire there that was hard to satisfy? Oh, there was, uh, there's a, a moment of realization when I was sitting there thinking, look, I've got, I've got shelves at, in my bedroom at home covered with puzzles and toys and uh, Rubik's Cubes and that sort of thing. And I go along to my first programming lessons in Pascal with a, an interesting guy, Lewis Stevenson, who was a delightful man with a, an enormous great moustache and a very bad tailor, as far as I could tell. And it was like, oh, this is, this is what I should have been. Why was I not doing this before? The ideas behind software development, the whole ethos of it was something that just it just clicked for me. It was like I was home, for want of a better way of describing it. Yeah, wow. How have, um, how have you seen, I mean, obviously there's been so many different programming languages since Pascal. How have you seen the industry change since, you know, since your early days? You know, it's got harder. It is harder to write software today than it was when I started in, in the early 90s. And this is, this is a peculiarity of the shift to using the browser. I mean, it's not really the place to, to get into deep uh, technical discussions about the merits of JavaScript and HTML. But when I started, it was we had Windows. So everything was written in VB or C, and it was really relatively straightforward to write complex systems. But we've moved into the browser world, and they, are, they use a very different technical landscape. And it, it is really much, much harder now for a developer to write something effectively. Just given the um, just the amount of options available out there, that where the uh, complexity yeah. comes from, or is it just because it's a different well, language that? Is well, it's the developed? nature of it's the nature of the browser because the browser didn't set out to be uh, something that was programmable. It was intended to display information, and the clue you know, the clues in the name as it is. But we you find that 
with JavaScript, it's an extraordinarily flexible language. You can do many, many things, you know, some great things in it, but it, it comes with many libraries. Um, so the, the popular ones that everybody uses, and of course, I can't remember them now I'm talking, but um, React, for example, is a JavaScript framework that everybody uses. Now, that is something that you have to learn, but then you'll go to another business and they'll use a different one. And there are many of these things and they come out almost weekly, it seems. And some of them will exist for maybe two or three years. And then the person who was making them doesn't earn enough money from them and goes back and gets a job in the corporate world and they die a death. So you end up in a situation where many of the the tools that people use just suddenly stop working or they don't advance and they don't support changes to the browser. So it's just become a much more complicated landscape. For sure. I guess from a business point of view, in terms of small businesses relying on, you know, developers and whatnot to help them, you know, program their websites, what are the implications for them for these big changes in, like you said, libraries, you know, software libraries dying a death after a couple of years? Does that mean then well, it, what supported? Well, it, I mean, that's a risk, certainly for, for small business guys. If you're having tools developed, then it's something you need to be very cautious of. You have to put your trust in the development company to do the work in the right tools and that they've got your best interests in mind, but they're also from their own interest of making a dollar, want to do it as quickly as possible with the least effort. So the tendency to jump on board what I might refer to as the bleeding edge is certainly quite prevalent. Yeah, that's sort of the, you know, different interests, the, you know, between the developer and the business, you know, the business wants, I guess, a long lasting solution that's going to last them decades. Well, it should do. I mean, this, this is, of course, is the point of these things is that you want something that will last. And that's very difficult in a landscape where change is so prevalent. That said, my particular background was working for a company who specialized in, used to be referred to as case tools, and they're now referred to as low-code tools. And these sit over, these sit above the, the low-level languages, so you can work at a much higher level. And when you press the build button, you get something that does the job and churns out the code correctly. I mean, this is not straightforward stuff by any stretch of the imagination, but compared to writing it in the lower level languages, it's much easier. But oh, these again, the issue again with all of these comes with a, a level of trust that you know, the business is going to continue to churn out what you want and whether you're actually going to end up working in the lower level language anyway. And you know, there, there are enormous complications with it. As ever, I mean, the, the best recommendation I can give for anyone is just to make sure that when they get out there, that they find a reputable development company. You know, these developing software is not something that should be done by little cousin Kevin. No, for sure. For sure. There's, there's so many, um, I guess, speaking from I software engineering at, at university, and there's so many, you know, complexities in it. And as soon as, you know, a program gets to any real size, then you've got a lot of testing that goes involved with that. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Plenty of t- I mean, testing is a, uh, that's a skill in its own right. No, for sure. Um, Stuart, can you, um, can you debunk some of the common myths you hear in IT? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I suppose that there's sort of two flavors of myths. There's the um, there's the small ones, which is like um, you don't need a virus checker. You just need some good common sense. That's uh, that's something I've heard on a few occasions, and it's uh, patently a lie. Common sense is a good start point, and good practices and good behaviors, obviously, uh, something that should be encouraged. But ultimately, you do need a virus checker. And you see lots of ads like, "Is your PC fast enough? Get this thing, and it'll fix your machine." Well, well, it might. It might if you've got something hideously wrong with it. You need more memory to go faster. Well, yes, that's true if you've only got a very small amount of memory. If you've already got six or eight gig, then you don't need any more. Certainly not for majority of small business requirements. My, my favorite one is the uh, that this pops up on Facebook regularly, which is that there is a new super virus which is going to cause complete and utter chaos. 
I describe these things as not dissimilar to uh, the idea of a little boy running into a medieval village screaming that there's a dragon coming. It's along those lines, because invariably a virus is no worse than any other. But the biggest myth, I suppose, and I I don't know whether it's really a myth, is that people think of IT as a cost. And I can, you you can understand that I'm, you know, I'm a small business myself, and I can understand that if you have to spend three or four thousand dollars every year on some hardware for one of your team, then it can it can feel like you're just spending money and getting no return. But but ultimately, what you're doing is buying an asset that makes your people better at what they're doing. So is it just is it just a mindset that needs to happen? Uh, predominantly, yeah. I mean, for me, it's certainly, it's largely about education. One of the the biggest issues is that IT gets left. As a, it, and people know they have to have it. It's a necessity today, but people don't understand it. They don't, and they've not taken the time to go and understand it. And and that's fair enough, right? I mean, we're all experts in what we do. But IT is this this thing that's now so pervasive that if you're running a small business, you need to have a handle on what it does. And so it's something that I'm not sure. I don't know how it, the best way to solve that particular problem, but it it is largely a mindset. People need to go and get educated on these things. Yeah, and I mean, there is there's a lot of sort of IT hardware and software that's out there. Do you see or do you recommend any sort of critical, at I guess a higher level, we won't call specifics right now, but at a higher level, what small businesses should be spending on and what are the critical building blocks that they should be looking at? I mean, it's difficult to say because um, specific requirements for individual businesses, but I mean, there are, there are patterns to these things as there are with many things. So, you know, we all need some kind of accounting software. Now, I'm fortunate enough, my accounting can be done on a spreadsheet. But by the time you get into a world where you're getting multiple payments, you know, or many payments a week or whatever it might be, then you need some kind of accounting and something like zero is as good a choice as any. Uh, everybody should be using a CRM, so which is customer relationship management software for their marketing, which can automate an enormous amount of your work for you. Entreport is, um, it's not my area of expertise by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but Entreport is, uh, is very well regarded in that sense. And then you you need some way of taking payment. I mean, very few people use cash anymore. So you need something like uh, Stripe, I believe, is, is one of the popular ones. That also fits in very well with Entreport. So that, get, that will get you your basics. Beyond that, it really will then depend on what your business does. But I mean, you're going to have the usual office tools and you can, use, you can use G Suite for that from Google or you can use Office 365. That, you know, there really is a minimal difference between the two in, in practical terms. Yeah, I guess it's more of a preference process for those. But that's great that you, um, yeah, so I guess you've got the accounting software, the marketing and sales software, and um, the... I'll, I'll stress again, CRMs. This is a, a peculiar thing that a lot of businesses don't yet or haven't yet got on board the idea of a CRM. And it's, um, for want of a better way of describing it, it's a no-brainer because the, the generally sort of touted figures that you see for the value and the return on investment is $5 for every dollar you put in. And possibly even more than that. So if you're spending sixty or seventy dollars a month on your CRM, you're making three hundred and fifty to four hundred off the back of it if you're using it reasonably well. So that I mean that's a, that's something that's just and absolutely should should be done. Yeah, it's a big system. I guess in the di- digital age, it's so much more important. You know, no longer can you keep a running total of your customers in your head. You know, you sort of need to outsource <laughs> to to a system really, which just facilitates yeah. the whole process. Well, well, this is this, and this is, of course, is, is very much the point of software uh, and the point of IT is it's there to make us better at what we do. So, if it saves us time and saves us energy, then it's making us more efficient and saving us money. And when you think the cost of a CRM is, well, I think, the basic for something like HubSpot or Entreport is only sixty or seventy, you know, dollars a month. That's a tiny amount of money for the value that it's re- giving you. 
Mm. Could it also be the complexity? I mean, CRM does sound like a pretty ominous sort of word, especially when you <laughs> when when you extend it, you know, in customer relationship, you know, management system. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm just spitballing here, but could it could just the word itself be off-putting to people? Um, probably, but but all of the you could say that about a great many things, and this is this is back to what we were just talking about this about this, the need for education, the need for a new perspective on things. If if one's perspective is that IT is complicated and difficult, then largely it's going to be complicated and difficult. If one's perspective is, hey, actually, hang on a minute, let's let's take a step back from the technology for a moment, stop looking at the technology, and think, what does this actually serve? What purpose does it serve for me, and how does it help me? Then we can start to compartmentalize things a bit more easily and look at them more in the sense of a toolkit than this sort of staggering immensity of an IT world. And so you've, uh, you've written a book sort of that helps, helps educate people out there called Doing It for the Money. Uh, yeah. Doing it for money. Doing, doing it for money, not the right. money. Doing, 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 doing it for money. <laughs> um, yeah, this came about primarily because all of the IT books I've ever seen deal with the specifics. They deal with a technical tool, let's say, or how to write software or how to do this or how to do the other. And I I kept thinking that there seems to be no book out there or nothing out there that teaches people the point of IT and very much the stuff that we've been talking about, this idea that uh, it's a tool, it's, it's there to help you. It shouldn't be feared, certainly. It's no more or less frightening than a car. We don't need to know how it works. You know, we can have a if we have a general understanding of how an engine works, then that's great. But we know how to operate a car. We can learn how to operate IT. And if we learn to use it in the way that it's intended, then it will make our lives much, much easier. So the book is really all about that sort of basic premise and builds on uh, the methodology that I use for assessing businesses, which is the idea that you have the sort of, uh, which I refer to as my phases methodology. You have a foundation, and then you have the assistance which you give to your team, and then you can simplify their processes. Then you need to look at how you use your IT to engage with your client base and how ultimately it should provide you with strength so that you can keep iterating over many years and building your systems and building something that is going to look after you and run your business for you. Yeah, so turning IT into a cost like we're talking about, into an asset that's going to you know absolutely keep your business it's, running without you in, in a sense its sole purpose is there to help you be better at what you do it's there to make life easier for you where, where can people find more about the book uh, you can find it on amazon it's also if you go to my website marshallfloyd.com.au you'll find it on the front on the homepage on there for anyone who wants to um you know who thinks that um, it can can be beneficial and Really, that, <laughs> that, really, really, that should be everyone. Well, uh, IT is beneficial. I, I, um, I was arguing this with somebody the other day that if you showed me the worst IT implementation you could conceive, you know, go out and spend a couple of weeks, go find the worst one you can find, it will still be an extraordinary asset compared to no IT whatsoever. And no matter how bad it is, I can't, I can't conceive of anything so bad that it would actually be costing you money. Uh, and the simple argument is this, that the average person in Australia by the time you annualize the salary and workers' comp, super, and all the other costs of it, having someone on, on the staff, the average person is about $100,000, practically slightly more than that, but for simple math, it's $100,000. And when you think of that in terms of, shall I use a person at 100000 for a year, or shall I use a computer? The cost of using technology is extraordinarily cheap compared to the cost of people. It is. I mean, some people are worried that the, you know, technology is going to replace their jobs. Do you have any viewpoints on that? It depends on who you ask. As um, PwC put out a report, 
I think, which said there was a net loss of a world net loss of 80 million jobs or something like that. And then somebody else has put out a report that says actually there's a net gain of 20, 200 million or whatever it might be. And there was an MIT couldn't decide what to say. So they went and looked at what everybody else had to say. And their conclusion was nobody actually knows. So the reality is this, some jobs will be replaced because that's what technology does. And it's what technology always has done. And that's a crucial point, right? When we, when we look back at the ideas of uh, the Luddites smashing up mills and other such things, what they were complaining about was that there was no point in them gaining their skills because they were going to be replaced by machines. And that's exactly what happened, of course. Uh, in 1979, the unemployment rate in Australia was about 5%, give or take. In 1980, the first PC arrived. Since when 150 billion PCs have been made worldwide, I think the number is something like that. And unemployment is still about 5%. So we need, to, we need to be a little bit cautious when we think that there's going to be mass unemployment. There's going to be a mass shift in the job market. Of that, there's no doubt. And in the short term, some will lose. And in the longer term, some will gain. So whether there will be mass unemployment, I don't know. But you know, there, there are far more fitness coaches than there ever used to be. So people have got more time now and more money to do other jobs. So the, the swings and roundabouts everywhere. It's very hard to say as to what will actually happen. Yeah, and I guess it's, it's really pure conjecture at this point. And I mean, the internet has really definitely opened up so many different jobs that you know we couldn't even thought of ten years ago. You know, influencers getting paid millions of dollars that would have been you know a fantasy for some. Well, it's inconceivable that individuals would be a brand beyond the ones that were churned out of Hollywood or, or wherever it might, the BBC or, you know, or wherever it might be, the, the big organizations. Could, you could have individuals that were a brand, but now anybody can be a brand. Some good marketing, a good message, and some consistency for a year or two, and you can be whatever you want to be. And it's uh, the beauty of mass, the mass market that we now have. Yeah, all, all this mass distribution that we have sort of at our fingertips, really. Mm. You know, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, LinkedIn, and you know, many tools to come, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, so they will come and they will go. I mean, this is uh, you can you can watch the evolution of the internet in real time. It's quite uh, it's quite interesting in that sense. It really, yeah, it really is with sort of the rapid development of, of technology and things sort of doubling every eighteen months. Although I think that's well, that was Moore's law, wasn't it? it was the uh, mm. computational speed would double? There's another one I forget what it is now, which is something to do with storage capacity as well. That's going up at an extraordinary rate. I think Samsung have just released their first terabyte phone. I can't imagine why you would want a terabyte of data on a phone, but then I I couldn't possibly have conceived of the iPhone 10 years ago. No, not at all. That sort of came out of the blue. And look at it now, every almost every person in the world has a, you know, has a smartphone. Yeah, the rate of change is extraordinary. But the interesting adjunct to that is that whilst the rate of technology change is, is huge, the rate of business change is actually extraordinarily slow. Fundamentally, business today is much as it has been for the last 2,000 years. Yeah, we're still buying and selling things from each other in a basic trade. That's largely what we do. We have different ways of getting to market, different ways of presenting ourselves, uh, and different ways of completing the trade. And yeah, we used to be limited to the guy in the village or the guy in the, who came around on the caravan once every six months or whatever it might have been. We're now capable of doing business anywhere in the world because our storefront can be you know, can be quite literally global. Mm. But ultimately, business is still business. We're still doing the same things. And this is part of, going back to the education idea, this is part of this understanding of IT that, that what we're doing is exactly the same stuff that we've always done. We just have different tools for doing it now. Yeah, precisely. We're still, yeah, we're still bartering products and services between people using a common medium of exchange. Um, yeah. 
and you know different different systems, tools, and processes to support that active exchanging value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and that's it. It's, the world really hasn't changed as much as it has changed. I mean, it was, the more something changes, the more it stays the same, and that's that's really what's going on. And this is the frightening thing I find about IT is that we get lost in the technology very easily. Before I before I came on this morning, I was reading a, a piece about how how five G is going to change business. And it's like, well, 5G isn't going to change business. 5G is a tool. People will find a means for the tool. It's a bit like taking a suitcase on holiday. Yeah. The bigger the suitcase you have, the more you put in it. It's that kind of idea that I've got this thing. What can it allow me to do? I can now move bigger files from backwards and forwards. Okay, I could do real-time streaming, live events. E-health is going to be a big gain from this stuff. But ultimately, the transactions that we make and the world that we live in, for the vast majority of people, really won't change at all. Yeah, I guess it'll be, it'll be only the ones that you know have a, a need for it at this point in time, a need for extra um, sort of data speeds right now that'll really take the benefit to begin with, and that'll flow through at some point. You would you would imagine, but um, but yeah, you know, ultimately most small business people, there's really minimal need. Yeah, it, it's it's a nice to have and it's lovely and it's delightful and we get things quickly and it's it's great. But if we look at it from a pure need point of view, then you know, keep your dollar in your pocket. What you've got today is fine. Yeah, and it's really only those that can take full advantage of it. And many, many won't, I guess, won't need to, will they? I mean, you know, you look at the transformation with the mobile networks over the years, you know, every every generation has been hailed as the, you know. <laughs> I mean, we'll be talking about an industry, which is, you know, the IT industry in general, the technology industry in general, which is it's the world leader in the sales of snake oil, the uh, hyperbole, smoke and mirrors, and other such things. Yeah, there has uh, never been a greater industry of saying, look over there, there's something really shiny that you ought to buy. And you go, oh, yeah, I'll go and get one of those. Yeah, and off you go, and you go spend some money on something that uh, six months later is sitting in the corner, not doing that much, and you wonder where, where you've spent your money and what you got for it. And Yeah, it, it, it's weird. Ah, oh, the upgrade fallacy I was going to tell you about. There's this, this wonderful idea that we should buy the next version of something. So I first used Microsoft Word in 1995, I think. It was version 6. And I wrote 63,000 words in a book recently in version 16 of Word, which is the current Office version. And I'm fairly comfortable that I could have written exactly the same book in 1995. And so I didn't need that upgrade. I could have written it using the existing software. And that's a crucial point when we start thinking about, shall I get the next version of something? Now, do I need to upgrade my phone? Well, what does your phone actually do? Well, I ring people on it, okay? And it runs apps, yeah, okay? Does it run all the apps that you need? Yes, it does. Well, you don't need a new phone then. If we're going to be brutal and save our money in the world of IT, then we want to make sure that when we upgrade, what we actually get is some value rather than what we really get, which is 95% of everything because we had that in the previous version and the few little bits that they've added on the edge. Yeah, and, and they make, um, you know, these companies make massive, massive amounts of money by marketing the, you know, the processor that's twice as fast, you know, than their predecessor. But really, you're not getting much of a, much of a benefit when you upgrade. I think I, I haven't upgraded my phone. Well, my, my, my first smartphone, I don't think I upgraded for five years. And I, only then because it broke. It was, uh, <laughs> it was running well, so I, slow. I, it, was, it was becoming a liability. Well, yeah, and that's the point. I mean, there, there, is a, there is a natural point when things need to be upgraded. Yeah? And we can, same as your home, eventually your kitchen starts to look a bit too shabby and it's time for a new one. And it's still functional, but at some point it's so bad that it's, it's detrimental to the process. So you, you, know, you pay the piper and you get it done. Uh, and the same in business. You look at a PC, it's good for three years, maybe four tops. 
And after that, it will still do the job. But the important point is that it needs to upgrade because everybody around you is upgrading. So you're in a competition, right? It's this kind of idea that even though I don't necessarily need to upgrade from a personal point of view, I don't live in complete isolation. So in the business world, you do need to do upgrades on a a regular basis to keep up with the Joneses as much as anything else. I guess as that sort of rising part of technology, you're going to make sure you don't sink in a sense. So you've got to sort of match Mm -hmm. what you're doing. How much should small businesses be spending on IT as a bit of a benchmark, you know? Um, It used to be about 5 to 6%. That used to be the number, but that seems to be changing of late. And I think this is a lot to do with the accessibility of technology now. Because we have things like Entreport and Zero on a, a monthly fee rather than having to go out and spend ten or $15,000, you can buy these things on a rolling basis. So people tend to spend more on technology than they used to. So now somewhere in the 7 to 8% of, of revenue is, is about right. Now, that that's not really doesn't quite apply to micro-business. But, um, by the time you get sort of 10 or 15 employees, then that's somewhere in the right neck of the woods. Yeah, that's good to know for people out there, you know, even at that point in time when they, when they do have 10 to 15 employees can start to do a, a quick check on their, um, on their financials. It, it, uh, it, it gets skewed by for smaller businesses. The smaller you get, the, the bigger the number goes. goes back to the, the reliance on technology these days for all businesses. It's such a critical, um, critical component to, to be able well, to, to do business. Well, I have a, fr- a friend of mine that says in a digital world, the analog is dead. And his point is that if you know, business is digital, everything is digital today. If you're not a digital business, then you're not at the forefront of your industry in whatever particular market you're in. And he said, well, you know, if, if you're just an analog business now, how can you complete? How can you compete? Uh, 80% of people expect to find someone online before they make contact. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a frightening statistic now, that if you don't have an online presence, then you, then you don't exist. Yeah, you are what Google says you are. I guess that doesn't just apply to businesses, but we were talking about it before with branding. That really applies to people. Or, mm, absolutely, or yeah. Will increasingly do so over... Um... Uh, definitely. Uh, it's, it's not going to get any less, certainly in the near future. Uh, it, I had my new yellow pages arrived the other day, which was a surprise. I didn't know they still got sent out. But I had a yellow pages and it's now one small book and half of its yellow pages and half of its white pages. And it used to be two great big thick Mm. I mean, you know, properly big, thick A4 books, or probably bigger than A4 if I remember rightly. But uh, now they're a, a tiny little thing. You know, these, these analog technologies are slowly but surely fading, and it's not going to get any less. No, no, no it changes, um, changes ever sort of ever constant in a way. And I actually do remember those uh, those big yellow pages and white pages books, and you're sort of flipping through them trying to find people. Mm. I guess that back in the day before the internet, that's how you, how you did it. What we did when I was a kid. That's just the way the world was. It's peculiar. You know, thinking back to the 80s, the, the, all the excitement that was going on, the technology you had was, in comparison to today, was woeful. But yeah, it was just the world that existed. Yeah, it was. And you know, everyone adapted back then, and I guess everyone will adapt now. And those that can't adapt will fall behind. That is the nature of evolution. Yeah, exactly. Just the way the world works. The question I'd like to ask all guests on the podcast is, what's your definition of the grind? What's my definition? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I suppose the grind for me is, is this idea that there's, there's some stuff that we have to do. Whatever, whatever walk of life we're in, there are things that we must get done. These are the, the big stones, you know, the great big stone, medium stone, small stone analogy. You know, the stuff we must get in 
Uh, that that for me is the grind. You know, I've got to get up in the morning. I've got to go and do some work because I need to earn some money. You know, that's that's a reality. I have to put food on the table, put a roof over my head. So the the bare minimum that I have to do to get that done is the grind. The rest of it is, for me, finding ways that mitigate the grind, if you like, finding you know opportunities to do things that I care about and I'm, I'm interested in. You know, two years ago I was working in a software company. Today I'm helping businesses get better at stuff and work smarter. Uh, and I, I love doing this. That's not the grind. Anything that's not that, yeah, that's the grind. Always interesting to hear, um, hear what other people think the word means. So thank you. Uh, Stuart, where can people find more about you and what you do? Uh, the easiest place to find me is on marshallfloyd.com.au. Or if you go into Google and search for me, I'm going to do it as I'm talking to you, Aidan, just to make sure. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't Googled myself for a while. Um, but if you just search in Google for Stuart Marshall, spelled S-T-E-W-A-R-T, then you'll find me on the top of the LinkedIn profiles. Brilliant. Yeah, so definitely, uh, definitely reach out to Stuart if you want to know more about what he does and um, how he can help you. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. If this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, I appreciate you for stopping by. Please subscribe. Otherwise, if you took away valuable advice from this episode, I'd love for you to share it with others. Until next time.